This is The Red Center, a podcast about The Handmaid's Tale. I'm Laura June. I'm Rose Eveleth. On today's show, we'll be talking about the 10th episode of The Handmaid's Tale, which came out this week. So if you haven't seen that yet, consider this your spoiler warning. So this is the final episode of the season, the season finale. Yep. Um, a whole bunch of things happen. So many things happen. Uh, Laura, do you want to tell us what happened? Yeah, I'm going to try to uh, keep the the sort of recap portion of the programming. I think there's a lot to discuss, a lot of big issues. So I'm going to try to keep the uh, recap a little short. So I'm going to gloss over some things. But feel free to, uh, to cut in on me if I skip something important. So... Um, the episode opens with a flashback to when June first arrived at the Red Center. Um, Aunt Lydia sort of hilariously refers to them as a parade of sluts. They're I love in their that. street clothes. <laughs> we get a scene where they cuff June's ear, which is like a massive machine. That's like they don't know about like a regular piercing, but I, I was guess like, they what? don't is want it, to come It's a out. staple gun, but it's like a hydraulic with staple like a generator. Gun? <laughs> yeah. It's There's a weird. really hilarious part where like it's not working, and the one, the one of the other ants has to like pull the plug out and blow on it and push it back in. Um, <laughs> yeah, and so then it, then it sort of uh, flashes forward to current time. Uh, June is in her room hiding the package under the bathtub. She comes out of her bedroom and uh, is confronted by Serena Joy, who has uh, tossed Fred's bunk last episode and uh, his man cave, <laughs> and she has the dress that she wore to the to the um to Jezebel's and she sort of kicks her in the head and then she forces her into the bathroom and makes her take a pregnancy test and um June is pregnant and do you think uh, she's really pregnant though we can talk about this later I do I do um I think that she does she is pregnant she sort of mentions to Nick later on uh you know oh Serena Joy knows which means that I believe uh June already knew that she was pregnant and hadn't told anyone Mm. except for Nick um and there's a lot of things that happen in the episode that I think address all of the things that we've been talking about in the book. They've basically exhausted the source material and pretty much everything that happens in the book happens in some manner or another in this episode. Um, so, you know, then Serena and uh, and June have this very awkward conversation where June basically is like, you know, I really didn't want to bring a baby into the world. But, you know, the dynamic is very interesting because now, of course, she had been just like kicking her in the head five seconds ago. And now all of a sudden she is worried about her well-being. <laughs> um, you know, she really wants to, uh, you know, the, the power dynamic is interesting because now June has something very valuable to her. Um uh, Fred comes home and Serena is sitting in his man cave. Um, they have a, another horrible, awkward exchange. Um, she confronts him. She she tells him that um, uh, she she found out because there was lipstick on the collar of her coat. Um, so she accuses him him of being a cheater. She tells him that Offred is pregnant, and then she says, "Oh, by the way, it's not yours. You're not capable of of getting someone pregnant." Um, there's an interesting Scrabble. <laughs> Scrabble conversation that that happens there too, um, and and she says everybody answers to God, Fred, and Fred says, "Will you answer to me? Go to your room." And then I know. she tells him like, that she's Jesus. Pre- then she tells him that June is pregnant, which is uh, extremely fucked up. Um. Then, uh, then there's the exchange with uh, with Nick and offered the next morning where she's like, you know, he kneels down to her belly and, and, and she's like, they know she forced, she bought a pregnancy test on the black market. Serena Joy sort of walks in on them, but doesn't say anything and tells June she needs to get her coat. They're going on a long drive. Nick not needed for driving. 
And then sort of one of the one of the several horrible episodes in the, in the show happens then, Ooh. which is that Serena, Serena Joy drives her to a house, says, I'll be right back, basically locks June in the car. She can see through like a crack in the curtains what's going on out the window. Serena Joy goes into the house, comes out later, uh, a minute later with, um, with Hannah, with June's daughter, and sits on the steps and talks to her while uh, June is in the car beating on the window screaming. Uh, then Serena gets back in the car, but instead of sitting in the back seat, she sits in the front seat. There's a glass between the front and the back. And, um, she basically threatens her. She says, um, you know, if, if, as long as your baby is safe, uh, is my baby is safe, yours is. And then she closes the glass basically all the way. And then June proceeds to, you know, call her every rotten name that you can think of, including like evil cunt, stuff like that. And there's this sort of, you know, reckoning moment where she realizes that I think what they're telling us is that in that household, Serena is um, the most obvious and clear threat to June. Yeah. I take everything back Uh, I said about Serena Joy not being evil. She is so... Oh, yeah. No, she's fucked up. (laughs) It was horrible. Yeah. And in that moment of desperation, we cut to Moira. Moira sort of lands herself on a farm. She finds a barn. She goes in. She sort of dusts off the plate and realizes she has made it to Canada. Um, oh, that happens actually before the daughter's right brought before, out. But, but it regardless, really this, this happens. It does happen. Um, Warren Putnam <laughs> is on trial um, for Janine's commander for Janine. Guy. Yeah, and um, he uh, Fred sort of, I assume, because of his own guilt, tries to argue for a a sort of light punishment for him. I think that they're arguing basically without saying whether or not he should be put to death. Um, and it is revealed that his wife has, has come and asked that he be put to death. Um, well, that's not true. She, he, she asked if he would the, for the harshest possible punishment. Um, right. We don't necessarily know that that means death for this situation. Right. Uh, they saw his arm off. That's what they do to him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, June tries to go see Nick, knocks on his door. He's not there. Cue worry. Has Nick been killed or taken away or whatever? Because, you know, I don't know. He, I assume Fred might know that he's the father, but whatever. Then she goes straight to Fred's man cave. And um, Fred sort of does that like weird rapey thing. He's like, oh, this is a nice surprise. Pretending that, you know, they haven't been outed and that nothing that's fucked up has gone you know she's just had this horrible day where she's seen her daughter and uh, she asks him to protect her daughter from serena joy he's like oh you don't need to worry about that and she's like you don't know her and uh, then he congratulates her on the pregnancy and uh, he asks if it's his she says of course it's clear that he doesn't believe her (laughs) Uh, she goes back to her room pulls out the package that she's hidden under the tub and it's full of letters of uh, individual letters that women handmaids have written, uh, identifying themselves and saying where they are, where they think they are, and talking about their mostly their lost children, but also family members. Um, then we get another seat of Moira in Canada. It's very surreal because they're sort of you know giving her, they give her cash, they give her a paid cell phone, they give her a health insurance card, and they're like, "Welcome to Canada. You're now an official refugee." And then, um, you know, Serena Joy and Fred have a, an awkward, shitty confrontation in the in the nursery. And um, then we get the salvaging. There's the bells ringing. Um, June wakes up in the morning, still surrounded by the letters. I was kind of pissed at her for that. I was like, Me you should have just you should have put them away before you went to bed. 
You're going to like ruin the it. Bell, the bells ring for a salvaging. The handmaids head out. And it's clear from the beginning this is not a normal salvaging. I feared it was Nick. It I thought not. it was Nick it too. Is Je- it is Janine. And why they have decided, like, why they didn't just hang her or shoot her, I don't know. They have made the decision that the handmaids should kill her. Um, Aunt Lydia says there is no greater miracle than life, and basically there's no greater sin than endangering life. So that's what they're, you know, presumably they want to put her to death for um, threatening to harm the baby. And... um, they want her. They want the handmaids to stone her. Aunt Lydia drops a tear, which I noticed. But um, yeah. <laughs> so one one handmaid is like, "This is fucking insane. We're not. I'm not going to do this." Uh, the guards come and sort of uh, pistol whip her, hit her, and drag her away. And then June steps forward and um, you know, drop, drops the rock on the floor on the ground and says, "I'm sorry, Aunt Lydia." And then everyone else does, and we really see the power of a group refusal to do something and then aunt lydia's like go home you know there's going to be a severe punishment for this but we're left with you know she's left standing with janine alone janine is uh alive for the moment because the handmaids have refused to um to to kill her um which is a really powerful sort of moment I think it's the whole season has led up to some sort of declaration of not war necessarily, but refusal. Um, And they leave sort of feeling empowered. I think June even says like, I know that this is probably useless, a futile refusal um, because it's going to have consequences for me and probably for her daughter. But, and also Janine will probably die anyway. But the fact that they refuse to do it is, I think, I think makes sense. I, I, I would have been very surprised if they had killed her, though I did fear that they were that someone was going to step forward and start the yeah. start the mob. I was really surprised um, that nobody stepped forward, but uh, we can talk about that in a second. I wanted to ask you about that. Okay, so then we'd get one final scene of Moira, which is that she um, that Luke appears and um, in the hallway as she's leaving and uh, tells her it's sort of a, a heartfelt moment where he says, "You know, you were on my family list," and she's Moira, who is sort of orphaned i think she's not really a person who has family other than june and luke um you know that that is sort of emotionally whatever for her um and they had asked her beforehand like do you have anybody on your family list and she said no and so like the sort of like parallel luke having her on his list yes so then we get the final scene which is um nick comes in he reappears he comes into june's room and you can hear him whisper. He basically says, uh, just go with them. Trust me, I think is what he says. Yep. And then the guards come in. And, you know, I guess we could think the guards are coming for her uh, because of, you know, there was going to be some punishment against the handmaids. They can't kill them all. But presumably since June is the first person to step forward and say, I'm not going to do this, they could easily take her out, right? So so the, the ending is quite ambiguous. Um, he says, please trust me. Go with them. Um, and there's a, you know, a long scene where she walks out with the guards. Serena Joy is like, where are you going? Why are you taking her? Fred comes out and he's like, let me see what you're taking her for. And, um, and Serena's like, says to Alfred, like, what, what did you do? You know, like clearly like thinking she deserves, deserves whatever is happening. And, um, it fades out with her getting into the van and, um, ends on American Girl by Tom Petty. That's the, the end. I, the music and the, I love this episode, but the music I'm still just like, come on. Uh, I mean, they had I'm Michael Bublé earlier. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I'm into it. 
so they end this episode basically exactly like the book. Um, yes. Which I thought was which right is, because which we is talked a- about last week that we did not think that was going to happen. Well, I'm not even sure I considered it. What's insane is for a show which has uh, built on the source material the way that it has, which is like I've actually never watched an adaptation which is both at once so faithful and so fucking out there, but like uh, far away from the source material. Um and it's insane because, like, you sent me an email last night. And you were like, wow, I wasn't expecting that. And I had just finished it when I got the email, and I sort of laughed because it 100% makes sense if you think about it in hindsight that they would end it exactly like the yeah. book ends because the end, the end, not considering the epilogue of the book, because the end of the book is perfect. It's amazing. You you don't know the motivation of Nick. You don't know if she's getting in to be taken somewhere to escape. You don't know if it's a true punishment. Because we don't know anything about Nick, the ending is completely ambiguous. And she says that. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know if this is the end or a new beginning for me. And I mean, they basically quote It's brilliant. The book. Yeah. It's like actually yes. the lines from the book, which I thought was like. It's brilliant. Yeah. And, you know, but there are, I, the, even though we've gotten some emails, which have sort of said like, I've gotten a few emails which said, you guys talk about the book too much. Well, <laughs> I think that the book is the extremely. The book. <laughs> it is a show based on the book, but the, but the show is really faithful to the book and it builds on it in a really interesting way. Um, three things I was waiting for last week were to see how it ended and if the ending of the first season would be as ambiguous as the book is. Um, And the answer is yes. I was waiting to see how they let her know that her daughter is alive. In the book, it is much more, a much more benign action by Serena Joy. She, she, um, in, in this instance, it's clearly a threat. Um, But you still get the important information, which is Hannah's alive and she seems to be doing very well. Um, And then finally, you um, find out that June's pregnant. And in the book, as far as I know, the only person that knows that she's pregnant is Nick. Isn't that correct? I think so, yeah. Yeah. And so in, in, in this, they've changed it, which I think was a really brilliant move because it allows her to... Um, Threaten Han- threaten Hannah, uh, threaten June with Hannah's existence, and it sort of allows the ending to play out in a, a truly ambiguous way because um, it's unclear if Nick is trying to help her escape. I mean, I feel like in the book, what what the the best interpretation of it is, he knows that she's pregnant and wants to get her out of there to protect both her and the fact that you know because obviously if they find out that she's pregnant then it really changes not just the way that they treat her because there's it's clear even in in the show here in the, you know uh, Rita knows that she's pregnant they, Serena sort of told everybody and she's it's clear that she sort of walks through the house in a different manner after they know that she's pregnant because um she has something that they that they want or need right i feel like their attitude towards her changes pretty drastically well and also in the book at least they she makes it very clear that she thinks the baby is nicks um, they don't quite like make that super clear. I mean, like they do talk about like Serena Joy being like, you know, it's not yours or whatever. But in the in the book, like you know, June says, um, like she explicitly is like, you know, it's yours. She's like has a conversation with Nick, and so like in the book, it's sort of like, oh, he's maybe trying to get his baby out. Also, whereas here we don't quite have that. And like, I wrinkle. and I really think what's interesting about generally questions of paternity, but in this particular instance, is because she is so erased as a person. The one undeniable fact is that the baby is hers. Um, 
it is biologically hers. It is inside of her body. And that question, no one gives a shit about. I mean, Fred comes in when they're arguing about, um, you know, their relationship in the nursery because clearly Serena's hurt, you know, he, 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 they have this fucked up exchange where he's like, you know, this is your fault. I, I, I think because it, I think what he's saying, it was unclear to me totally, but I think what he's saying is like Serena Joy is like coming on to him sexually. Is that what he's saying? I think he's like, so. You're the one yeah. who brought, right. Cause she's like trying to suck his dick or something. Yeah. So it's his like, quote is, I wrote this down cause I thought it was really interesting. He, she's like, you know, you're going to have to control yourself. Like I will not have another like handmaid hanging from a ceiling or stepping in front of a truck. Right. And she kind of like lobs at him. And then he says, control myself. You brought lust and temptation back into this house on your back and on your knees. If I have sinned, then oh you God. have led me to it. Where it's just like, <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> like, but also classic Christ. man. Yeah. <laughs> Classic man cornered by a cheating episode. Uh, yeah. I think this is your fault. I'm pretty sure uh, you're the slut. It's either here? you were you were either you were either too slutty or not slutty enough. There's right. never it's never there's never any um yes, I'm sorry, I fucked up. But but you know, I think what I find to be really interesting about the ambiguous paternity is um it doesn't fucking matter to me. Right. It doesn't matter if it's Fred. Even if it's Fred's, it's like who gives a but shit? They also she have was that- like yeah, so Serena Joy and Fred also have that very awkward exchange in the nursery where, like, where Serena's, like, she's having a baby. When Fred's like, we're going to have a baby. And she's like, it's her. She, and she kind of admits, she's like, she is having a baby. Like, June is having a well, baby. Well, she knows because really she's mine. a woman, right? right? But, like, I mean, Fred is like, this... oh, it's ours. We're going to be a family. And then she'll be gone and blah, blah, blah. And that I, it's hard to tell. And I think it's a really good, like, they do a really good job in this scene where it's hard to tell if Serena Joy is, like, crying because she's comforted by that or crying because she thinks this is really fucked up and I thought that was like a kind of nice like ambiguity to me at least yeah I mean she more than any other character rocks back and forth between evil and somewhat sympathetic and I think the reason is the position that she's in is impossible and I think that that forces complicit powerful women in the society to lash out right she wants to play scrabble with fred fred's like oh remember you're not allowed and she's, and she's like, like yeah I wrote but the i law. I, <laughs> right i wrote the law and i still know how to read you know and i think that what is i don't have sympathy for her but i have i understand why she's behaving the way that she's behaving in the position that she is in and i understand that she knows the truth which is sort of what i already mentioned which is it is June's baby. And she knows this at a like sort of cellular level that men can never understand about pregnancy. They don't, he's like, well, who cares who has the baby? Right. But she knows she's not the one who's pregnant. She's not going to give birth to the baby. And like in a free society, I agree. Like the maternity also, the biological maternity also doesn't always matter very much. But in this society, it is the most powerful thing that they have. And it's also the thing that they hold over both the handmaids and the wives. And so they're in this, so the pregnancy period is clearly the most volatile of of the handmaids like life, right? And I think with what you see with, with Janine is sort of the worst outcome of it and i do understand why if i'm thinking like a like a commander or whatever or a person in power i think that behaving the way that putnam did which is i have a crazy handmaid so i'm just going to tell her whatever i want to whatever she wants to get what i want is very dangerous right because janine was not i think stable emotionally to begin with even for a handmaid i think she was relatively unstable so i think 
Um, yeah, I'm just very intrigued by Serena Joy as a character. And I mean, I, I like her less now, <laughs> for sure, considering what she did with Hannah. But I also found it to be, um, I think it, it, I mean, seems like it would be effective on some level. But then it's not really because it seems to only push June into sort of further disobeyal. Well, this is one question I had for you about that because like, you know, in watching that scene, it's incredibly painful to watch her like sitting on the steps, talking to Hannah and see June like freaking out being like, that's my baby. You know, like that was like incredibly Mm -hmm. difficult to watch and like, and I don't even have a kid, but like it was still just like, Really intense. Um, But then I was thinking about it and, you know, so she's basically saying, like, as long as my baby is safe, your baby is safe. But, like, does – would Gilead ever, like, hurt a kid? Like, I mean, this is – they're supposed to be their, like, most valuable resource here. Like, this is supposed to be the thing that we're all kind of, like, working towards because the birth rate is so low. So, like, I mean, I don't – I'm not saying it's an empty threat. I think that, like, Serena Joy is capable of doing terrible, terrible things. But I'm also kind of, like – and maybe it doesn't even matter because when you're a parent, like, it doesn't really matter. Even, like, a threat like that, even if you don't think they would really do it, doesn't matter. But ter- part of me was like, but they wouldn't, like, kill a kid. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that that's what they're telling us in her immediately turning around and disobeying Aunt Lydia. I think what she knows is that – um what Serena Joy doesn't know. Serena Joy has clearly known that Hannah was alive and well the whole time. That's not something – that June has known. It's she's assumed it, I think. Um, but I really don't because I think she has has no other hope if she assumes she's dead, but she hasn't known it. And now that she confirms it and knows that she's alive, and in Fred, I, I will say the the exchange with Fred in in the man cave is really interesting because uh she asks him to protect her, but he never answers her and she doesn't really press it. I think her saying it. And him dodging it seems to be, and then they move on to talking about her current pregnancy, I think um, sort of underlies to me that I think you're right. I think it is sort of an empty threat. I can't imagine um, this society in particular, like killing a child to, you know, like it, what, like if, yeah, I, I, it's just inconceivable. So I think that, um she knows that she clearly has, you know, Serena Joy has the power to like see her daughter or I assume, you know, she could tell her awful things about her mother to the extent that they even talk about like the existence of Hannah having a mother. But I don't think that that the threat is like, oh, I'll kill her. Right. Or if it is the threat, I don't think she has any way of acting on it, really. Right. I mean, like, even if you don't think, even like, that there's a high chance that she would hurt her, it's. I'm sure it's still effective in the sense that you're, like, she's dangling this thing in front of you that is incredibly yeah. painful, right? Like, I'm not saying that, like, why would June react that way? Like, I think that's, like, was very effective and I think is a reasonable reaction. Um, right. The other thing that I, so I thought, and, and I'm wondering if, if this is what you thought, too, when you were watching, is that, so, you know, she has this conversation with Waterford. June has this conversation with Waterford um, in his office and she's like, I need your help. I need you to protect my daughter. And she kind of has this thing where she's like, you don't know her. You don't know what she's capable of, you know, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and I was kind of like, why do you think Fred's going to help you? Like, I mean, I, I don't know. But then when I thought when he went into that, into the nursery with Serena Joy, I thought he was maybe going to like do like ask her or like do something or like actually try to see or like, or I thought that was because like, it was clear when he came in, it was sort of like, oh, he wants something or he's like going to ask for something, you know? And even Serena yeah. Joy says like, what do you want? Like clearly you want something. And then he doesn't really 
go through with it because he's like he just sort of winds up com- trying to comfort her instead. But I sort of was like, oh, maybe I wonder if he is going to actually ask her for something or ask her right. about Hannah somehow. But I, I don't know how he would have done it. I think what he actually probably wants is to, he says, you know, if we confess our sins, which she doesn't buy his bullshit, she's like, don't say that to me. Um, I think what he wants is to not end up like Putnam. I think he wants that desperately. And I think that to the extent that he can placate both of the women in his triangle, he believes that that, I mean, there's only two people that can really, well, there's Nick, but, and he's the real threat. But I think that, you know, the two direct threats to Fred are Serena Joy and, um, June. It's unclear. I don't actually. know. So actually, I wanted to ask you about that scene because there's that scene where they're all sitting there and Putnam like, you know, confesses his sins and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then Fred's just like drinking water, like being really chill. And then there's that guy who I should have looked up his name at some point because we keep talking about him. And we keep referring yes. to him as like that guy. But there's that guy who Nick had met originally and who kind of brought him in and who I think Nick is working for. And it seems very yeah. clear from this that he is in charge here. Like he is the person who is he's in charge. He's either the boss or he's like, he's like, the true believer. Right. right? I think he's, he's the a, boss because everyone kind of listens to him and, you know, he right. says like, all this stuff. And I think that they're setting up, and I I hope what they're setting up is for him to kind of become a major player in the second season as, like, kind of the actual leader slash, if not, like, actual leader, kind of, like, the person pulling the strings behind the scene of, like, all this stuff. Because he doesn't—it's hard to tell—in the last times we've seen him, it's hard to tell if he believes— it or not you know there was that whole scene in the car yeah. where they were like mm-hmm. coming up with the handmade thing and they were like oh yeah the wives will eat that shit up you know and whatever but then in this scene he's sort of playing the role of like oh well you know she came to me and she fears for his immortal soul and she knows he must make an offering to god to find redemption and blah blah blah, blah. and like blah, who blah, knows blah. if he's actually a telling the truth who knows if she actually came to him i think maybe she didn't maybe he's just lying and b you know what does that like, does he be- believe any of this anyway? Or is he just trying to kind of, like, keep all these guys in line because he's kind of realized that people like Fred are just kind of, like, going out and doing whatever the fuck they want and don't feel like they have any consequences? Right. Fred's, like, sort of a functionary, right? He's like, we got a lot of work to do today, guys. Let's wrap this up. Um, but it seems really convenient to me. And I think that the dynamic between... I think they kept us from seeing a lot of this dynamic um, throughout most of the season and kept it focused on sort of more domestic matters. Um, And I understand why they did it, but I do think we'll probably get some more inside political baseball next year, Um, which I'm not like, I feel like they can do a lot with very little. Like I feel like this scene's super short and it, it tells you a lot. I think they have sort of dropped a lot of breadcrumbs about, you know, this guy whose name we don't don't know Um, and the fact that he works for Nick. And I I think what's interesting is, you know, June knows and has known for a long time that Nick is the eye in the house. It seems that Fred does not know that. Um, He seems to be unaware, correct? I don't, yeah. I mean, as far as we understand, he's unaware. And I think that they try to suggest that he doesn't know because there are those moments where like they go to Jezebel's and he's like, oh, Nick's always worrying, you know, and this and that. And he seems to just kind of be, I, I think he's, they're sort of setting him up as kind of like the person who has achieved power and then now thinks they're untouchable where, when that is of course not the case. Yeah. I totally think that Fred is a delusional, 
Um, which is why his his when when June comes down um, after having the day where you know she sees Hannah and refuses to kill Janine or whatever is that the same day? Sorry, I'm looking up this guy's name. Andrew Price is the character's name. <laughs> the guy okay, can't, but sorry, that's why I'm distracted. I'm like looking up what because I I'm annoyed that I can't remember his name. Um, yeah, and they have the, you know she comes down after um, trying to see Nick and Nick's not home. You know, knocking on his door and he doesn't answer. And she goes to see Fred to ask him to protect Hannah. Um, she, you know, they have he. His greeting to her is super strange. He's like, "Oh, what a nice surprise!" And I thought, "Oh, yeah, this guy like really doesn't know the score here at all. He doesn't understand that the women in his life, or if he does understand, he has chosen, like you said, he doesn't think that there are threats to him. I think that he believes um, he's the boss, and I think that we've seen." the extent over the course of the last episodes, uh, 10 episodes, like how little truth truth there actually is to that. I don't think, I mean, he has the power to, um, you know, to have sex with June when she doesn't want to, for sure. But I think that in terms of the structural power of, I mean, that power is um, given to him inherently in the structure of uh, Gilead. But I think that in terms of the sort of under the surface uh, wheeling and dealing black market power um, that is the sort of currency of the show and like what our hope is based on. He seems either, you know, he considers there's a moment where he mentions, oh yeah, we, you know, we, there were, you know, a couple more Marthas arrested. Like when will these people learn or something like that? And it's just like, he considers this stuff to be an annoyance. He doesn't understand, uh, I think how truly dangerous um their situation is in terms of like retaining their power. And I think that, um, that is a little curious to me why he would be so, because since Gilead is so new, why they would be so sure of themselves. And it sort of like leads me back to my, do do they have just like a fuckload of weapons? You know what I mean? Like, why are they not, why do they not feel more threatened than because they're so clearly threatened, um, just in, in every way. Um, but what Nick is doing, I don't know, you know, if he is a, I mean, he's presented to us basically as a double agent, but, um, or yeah, basically he works, it seems like he works for Fred, but actually he works for Price, is his name? Price, yeah. Um, and, and sort of works for the superstructure of Gilead, right? Like he's the, he's the guy who's supposed to keep you know, whatever. But we've never actually seen him report on anything. So we don't know Well, there was what kind of information. scene where he like, um, where they're bringing in, I think it's Putnam or somebody, they're bringing in somebody, Andrew Price is standing next to him and he's like kind of asking him questions about like, oh, have you seen this or that? And he kind of like, or he right. tells him to report on. So I think he, like, we, we know that he reports to Price. Um, and then right. when he's like digging around in Jezebel, he's like asking all these questions um, and that seems like a normal thing. You know, it seems like the woman, that baker, that that chef there is like used to him kind of like poking around and asking questions. Oh, it's yeah. only when mm-hmm. he starts asking about the handmaid that she's like, wait a minute. <laughs> um, right. But yeah. Right. Um, I mean, like, I think Nick's, Nick's ambiguity is like both the like great and infuriating thing about both the book and the show, which is like, you know, you really, really want to know like what the fuck his deal is. And like even his relationship with June, like they go back and forth, like they're kind of hot and cold where like he'll be like, no. And then she'll kind of like push him off and that, you know, and they go back and forth. And then they have this moment in this episode where 
he like leans down and he like sees, you know, like, oh, it's the baby and whatever. And he like is being very like tender and nice to her. And then Serena Joy walks in and he kind of like is like goes away. You know, so like there's this stuff where you're like, I just what is this deal? And it's like that kind of like tension um, of not knowing if he's like saving her or if he's like not saving her or if he even is capable of saving her or if he wants to or like what's going on. And I like that. But I'm also like it's also sometimes annoying because I'm like, I just want to know the answer. Yeah, it's uh, I mean, here's the only thing I'm sure of having watched the episode. I believe that Aunt Lydia is the closest thing we have to a true believer. I wanted to ask you about that. I don't know. Go Go ahead. ahead. (laughs) Well, I just I don't know why um, they have chosen not to. I mean, I think there's two possible interpretations to my words there. I think it means either she is so guarded and mysterious as a character that they've chosen they've chosen not to flash back. We've seen nothing of her life before. I have a hard time imagining her as having a regular life before. Um, we've seen we know nothing about her interior. We don't know anything about what she actually thinks. And she's shown herself to be a person who can be quite like motherly to the handmaids, but she's also their torturer, you know? And I think that there's a, a, you know, Stockholm syndrome going both ways um, between these, between Aunt Lydia and the handmaids. And I think that June clearly hates her guts. um, And I think that that's the right interpretation of Aunt Lydia. I don't think that the handmaids, like only Janine seems to have some sort of affection for her. And as we've talked about, Janine is like a damaged person. And, but Aunt Lydia seems to have some true affection for the well-being of the women. She even sort of steps in on behalf of the handmaids whenever she's trying to get them to kill Janine. When the guards are stepping in to like come after June, she's like, no, they're my responsibility. She wants them to do these awful things and obey her, but she doesn't really want the the guards stepping in and like shooting her property because they're they're valuable and they're the whole you know, they're what the whole system is built on. Well, and also so that's her, her failure, right? If she can't get the, yes. the handmaids to do what she wants, then what is she right. doing? That's the only thing that's probably keeping her alive in this entire structure. Right. So again, I think that, she, but she seems to be, the way she's presented is, you know, her um, her empathy or affection or emotion of, to the extent that she has any for the handmaids Um is opportunistic and clearly, um, you know, for all for the goal of getting them to do what they're told. But we've seen no evidence that she has any like conflicted feelings about her job. We've seen no evidence that she has any life outside of her job. Um, and so it's that to me, she's the wall. She's the mystery to me that like, I feel like they will open with next season. I feel almost not certain of it, but I feel like she will be developed as a character very quickly next season. I hope so. I mean, I think she's really interesting and you know, and yeah, like I totally, there's, there will be these glimmers of like her being nice to them, you know, like in that moment where Serena Joy lines them up and then says like, remove the damaged ones. And she's like, well, they all have done their duty to God, like da, 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 this and that. But I don't, and then you have that moment where she's in the hospital with Janine, which seems like a tender moment until you realize that she's only keeping her alive so that she can then ask the other handmaids to stone her to death, which is yes. fucking psychotic. So it's like, right. this is crazy. 
Um, and I do. I even thought. I even thought in that hospital scene for a minute, maybe she was going to like OD her on some morphine or something. You know, like you wonder if there's going to be like a pillow smothering or. But no, she's not mercy killing anybody. No, and I will say I, I wanted to say this last episode and I forgot, but the woman who plays Janine, Madeline Brewer, is awesome. Mm-hmm. I think she's doing an amazing she's job. She's amazing. Janine is yeah. like so like so compelling to me in this show, um, as just like this person who's like balancing all these things, and I think she's been really good. Um, I wanted to talk to you about though about that scene the the stoning to death scene because i think Mm -hmm. it's really interesting because i was really surprised because one of the things not to like talk about the book too much but one of the things that i think was even in the show and they talk a lot more about in the book is that you know you never know who's a true believer and who isn't right and like you just said like you know lydia aunt lydia seems to be the only true believer all of the other handmaids seem to be like and i don't even believe that she is right Right, like she might be the she might be it's totally 100 percent possible that she's the most revolutionary of all of them right like i have no i could I have no way of knowing if they're going to reveal like she's actually fucking taken down the system, right? Like she I've, is made it. That totally, <laughs> yeah, that totally could happen. I have no idea. Yeah, but I mean, I thought that it was really interesting. So there's this moment where you know, and they do this obviously uh, intentionally, where the 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 new partner of June, um, I don't remember her name, but the woman who like plays the new of Warren or something. No, the yes. one. Who, so after Emily is is sort of good dragged away off off glenn off glenn right the new off glenn who to this point has also been kind of shown to us as a true believer where she's like doesn't want to fuck with june whatever june's doing with emily she's like don't she's talk like to a that goody person. goody yeah she's, a goody goody. she's like don't talk to me like or don't get me in trouble like i just want to like put my head down and get this shit done and maybe she's not a true believer but she's like i don't want to rock the boat i like you're the worst partner ever like fuck you you know all that stuff and then right. to have her be the first one to step forward and be like we can't do this Right? Like, this is crazy. Like, we're not—I'm not stoning Janine to death and having her get, like, hit was sort of interesting to me because—and then, you know, we—then nobody else steps forward. And to me, it was sort of interesting because in the book and and even earlier in the show, they have been— it's sort of this like, oh, you never know because there are some people who truly do believe. There are some people who have been indoctrinated, who have Stockholm Syndrome, who like really do like do this. And even in the earlier salvaging we saw, people swarmed and killed that guy in a way that was just like, what is going on? This is crazy. Right. But the fact that not a single one of those handmaids even stepped forward to do this was really surprising to me. Like I thought there might be a situation where it starts and then maybe June like tries to save her or like there's sort of more of a like physical conflict there. The fact that every single handmaid was like, I'm not doing this. Like this is just like too much was surprising to me because I think in this situation and in this world that they're setting up, I mean, it just feels like there are always people who think would even at least like throw a rock not hard but maybe just like kind of lob it you know what I mean like to seem to be participating and the fact that none of them would even do it I thought was a really interesting choice I think it's an interesting choice but I think it's also really uh representative of how volatile human group interactions can be which is they've been programmed um to obey and part of the power of that programming is that they're always they're almost never alone um they're almost never single actors and in fact their entire individuality has been erased um and so the mob mentality that kicks in when they kill even i mean the reason that the first salvaging is so fucked up is it is like a group like a mob that June participates in. And she talks about that. She talks about how um, diminishing of herself that feels to sort of 
just go with the flow and like get your aggression out by killing someone, uh, someone who you don't know is guilty or not. And I think that on the opposite side of that rabid, foaming at the mouth desire that's always started by one person. One person is always the person who goes, yeah, I'm going to throw this fucking rock at this person's head and then everyone else is going to join in. And it's just a question of who breaks first. And I think that the fact that they had June be the person who breaks first but in the opposite direction. But she doesn't. It's the other one who breaks first. Well, the other one breaks first but she gets hit in the head, right? And so... Because she's like, this is fucking insane. It's like this reminder that the outside world exists and that this isn't how modern life is supposed to work. And then she gets, um, you know, taken out, basically. They yeah. remove her from the scenario. I'm only scenario. bringing that up or I'm only like pointing it out that it's not June is because I think it's, a, it's, it's specifically her and not any of the other handmaids. It's not Alma. It's not any of the other ones they could have picked that we right. recognize. It's the one that we thought was maybe somebody who actually was like complicit and fine with this. Oh, yeah. And so that's why I yeah. just wanted to like, it's because like I keep seeing people be like, oh, June is going to like, you know, it'll, I feel like June's going to get credit for this thing that she didn't do. It's not her. She didn't do it first, you know? Oh, yeah. She definitely – I mean, she definitely is June to start with. She's just standing there thinking. Um, And I think that the first person, you know, seeing that – like the way that that happens and she does sort of step forward second, knowing what will probably happen to her, which is that she'll get hit in the head with a rifle – Um, but instead of saying like, you know, this is insane, she like does this sort of like – I would say – you know, symbolic gesture of dropping the rock on the ground. But the truth is obviously like if everybody refuses to do it, then they can't, you can't force them to kill her. You can't actually force someone to do something if everybody in the group is refusing. Like I said, you can't kill them all. But I do think that they probably chose, you know, her shopping mate, Offglen, um, for the reason that you're talking about, which is it's still unclear what that means about her. You know, it's clearly like a heroic stand to take, but it's just, you know, everybody has their breaking point. And I like to believe that even in the worst of circumstances, um, we would not ever be presented with in this show a scenario where the group of handmaids would kill another handmaid regardless yeah, I mean, of at that point, like, sin. it's all fucking lost. <laughs> like, you know, like, we're just like, there's no hope at that point. I mean, right. there is that line that they, she gives at the very beginning of the episode, which then is sort of echoed later when they're walking back from this sort of failed salvaging, when they're all walking in a line. And she says, um, at the beginning, she says, it's their own fault. They should never have given us uniforms if they didn't want us to be an army. So they're clearly, like, setting us up to say, like, these women are going to, like, lock rank and not do what they've been told necessarily. Um, and I think right. that's really interesting. And like, you know, this idea that like they are one entity, like if you're going to take their humanity away from them and you're going to take their name and you're going to take their history and you're going to take their family and their kids, they're going to kind of become like one entity and like one group and they are going to act all together. And if you are Gilead, you can, you know, you can try to harness that singular action to be to do what you want, like kill Janine or even kill the other guy who we saw the salvaging before. But if it's so delicate and if you don't do that right, you end up with a singular unit that is now no longer working with you. And that can be quite dangerous. Right. Um, yeah. And this idea that like, you know, I'm excited to see in the next season, which I'm sure they're going to develop this like some kind of resistance, whether it's that June gets out and then she kind of tries to come back and like or tries to like kind of 
aid the resistance that way or if she's still in and she's just being punished and she's sort of leading some sort of army that way like there's like they're setting us up to try to to or to think about and to have these characters think about what it means to kind of be a like almost like faceless collective unit um which is mm-hmm. what they've been reduced to by Gilead but that like I think they're trying to kind of make the point um that that's a very powerful entity if you can if you can point it in the right direction and sort of like do certain things with it right so do you think she's getting out? Oh my god! Ah, I don't. I mean, obviously, I want her to get out. I mean, I want her to get out. But here's my prediction. Here's my answer. Okay, go. You go, go first. ahead. Okay, you go. Oh, okay. So, um, with the caveat that I also predicted that Fred was going to die in this episode, and I make extremely bad <laughs> predictions. But here is my prediction. I do. I think Fred might die next year. Oh, I hope so. I do. I hope, but and I think the sooner the better. <laughs> I think Fred's in deep, deep. Oh, Fred's shit. definitely in deep shit. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, so my prediction is that June. Um, gets out, but then she goes back as like an undercover person because she wants to get Hannah. Interesting. This is definitely I, not happening. By the way, <laughs> I, I, I don't. I don't think she's getting out. I think that the someone's gonna wreck. I mean, I really. I don't think she's gonna get out. I, mean, just I for don't the show think... it. Like if you if you lose all of your characters inside of Gilead, you've lost. Janine, basically, you've lost Emily, you lose June, you only have what, like Nick? I don't really care enough about Nick for him to be like my main inside Gilead guy. We don't have Moira's out. But I now. also <clears throat> I also think that she Yeah, I think that she what what we've seen over the last ten episodes is um they have to be really driven to the brink pretty hard to decide to kill a handmaid. Um, they torture them a lot and they do a lot of bad things, but the handmaids are the sort of the currency, the valuable currency, and they're clearly limited in number in terms of fertile young women. So I, I believe that there are lots of ways this could play out where she could almost get out and fail to get out and still be kept alive um, I think that it could ambiguously, like I said, something they could wreck um, and, you know, the driver dies. They all seem to be terrible be- drivers in this world. They're There's terrible drivers. We've established that. Going on. And I think that that would also sort of sidestep the ambiguity of Nick's action to begin with because we wouldn't know how it plays right, out, right? If she gets her. out, if she gets out, then we know they were taking her to Canada and we know we we know the score of uh, of for Nick at least with re- regards to June right and possibly his child however i don't think she's getting out i think mainly because i mean right like what would the story be i think that she's going to have to unfortunately be stuck in there for a long time i think janine is dead. <laughs> I do. Aww. I think she's, I think she's done for. Um, and I'm like, you know, when I, and in the thing about like predicting whether June will or will not get out is like, I don't even really like predicting. I think in, in a, in, um, most of the time when I watch TV, especially the most gripping shows. And I think that this really has been very gripping. Um, I, I'm very often just along for the ride. I think that the source material of the book um, gave me like a sort of unique insight. But like, again, it's insane that one of the possible endings of, of the show obviously would be the book. And that is not something I considered. Um, I did not consider that they would address all th- sort of three of the things um, that are in the book sort of clumped at the end, which are, you know, her pregnancy, Hannah, and her ambiguous escape. And the fact that they did all of that 
in a way very quickly in this one episode. Um, you know, it'll be really interesting, I guess, to see sort of what direction it flies off the rails next season now that they have basically no they have basically no source material to work from. Right. I mean, I do um, think that that's like a genius move to be like, okay, you know, especially for like diehard fans of the book where they've literally like they've closed the book. They've oh, yeah. like said like, okay, we are done yeah. now with this this thing and we are going to now move along to the next thing because I think if they didn't do that, I do wonder if like people who have been watching with the book in mind would be like, well, wait, when is this happening or what's happening or whatever it is? And I mean, I've really enjoyed watching the show. I think some people on our iTunes reviews think we don't like the show, which like the people have been like, why do you watch the show if you hate it so much? And we, I, don't, I don't think either of us hates the show, um, but I've enjoyed watching it. And I, but I will say that I have had, because I've read the book a bunch of times and I reread it and listened to it before this, I do always kind of have in my mind, like, oh, is this that thing from the book? You know, like, oh, is this that right. other thing? Or, oh, I wonder if they're going to do this other thing with this, what they did with the book. And now they've kind of like very explicitly been like this, the book is closed now. We have done the things in the book and now we are going to move on and that's really cool and I think they have been really true to the book even not in like direct plot line but to sort of the vibe oh, yeah. and mm-hmm. all of those things and also and like you said have have built it out into a, a, a slightly different thing I mean the one thing that we had like they have they weren't true to was sort of like the racism element of Gilead which I still am like a little bit it's like a little bit annoying yes. to me um, I, and we actually haven't really talked about it and maybe no. that's a good a good like two minute thing to do before we sort of wrap up, which is, and there have been some things written about it, but it struck me very early. And yeah. I have to say before I read the pieces that were written about it, which sort of came later because, you know, we were watching it a little bit earlier than most people. Um, is that for a society this fucked up and backwards about women generally and lots of things, they seem to have glossed over quite easily. Um, like any concept of, racism or eugenics um which is very very explicit in the book <laughs> like that they that is very, very racist and very eugenic society I, I should say right and um and i think that there are modern 2017 reasons for that and i think that it did sort of create a a, a problem for them if, to the to the, like the extent that there's a problem which is i think that they said you know they they wanted the show to be diverse, right? It's great that, I mean, that it's a reflection of like what 2015 or 2014 society would look like, which is that like people have children with people who aren't white or, you know, whatever. And I think that in in doing so, in having a cast that is is diverse and not simply uh, all white people, what they have done is sort of created the situation where you're like, wait, would they really want black handmaids or Chinese handmaids? Like, I feel like a society this backwards, it's, and, and I remember when I said this to Josh, he was like, well, there's not that many fertile women. Maybe they would just be like, write that into the book, write that into the religion that, you know, race doesn't matter or exist. But I still find it very um, hard to, hard to get over and I wonder to and I know that the writers and the people who've made the show are very very smart so I I suspect that this may come up but it would be very hard to deal with it at this point right like they must yeah. have some sort of uh sort of convoluted re- religious textual explanation for this right they're like well we're so threatened as a species that now we have to pretend that we're against racism (laughs) you know we're not racist people i i do think that like 
I think that it wouldn't be that explanation. I do agree. And, like, it has bothered me. And, like, t- I understand the the reasoning behind doing it as, like, a casting decision, right? And, like, Samira Wiley is right. amazing, yeah. right? Like, I'm – like, yeah. she's great. And, like, there's all these people in the show who are great. And, like, you know, and it would be one of those – it sort of is one of those things where it's, like, if they had gone straight from the text and had an all-white cast, they would have probably gotten shit for that, too. So, like, I get that. Yes. But I think that the way that – it's hard for me to watch, especially in this episode where you have that panel of all-white men sitting there that, like, yes. it's very difficult for me to imagine that those people would be like, no, 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 we're cool with all races. It's all good. You know, like, just feels – and in the book, and I think in I think for re- a good reason, because when you have a situation like this where you have a um, a dystopian society that is fueled by a very sort of – insane religion and the sort of strict adherence to a text that they've kind of made up for their own purposes, but they are apparently going to pretend like they adhere to. Um, And that is so based around essentially what is eugenics and sort of this idea that, you know, they need to build up their society again and they need to build what in the book is very clearly a master race. You know, you have all of these like white people and all of the commanders that we've seen and all of the commanders' wives that we've seen are all white people. It's very difficult for me to imagine uh, a white commander and a white commander's wife holding a little brown baby and being like, this is totally fine. You know, like, I just feel like there's no, like, racism is so deeply ingrained in the world of 2014 or 15 or wherever yep. it was in the show. And I just mm-hmm. cannot imagine that, like, that goes away, as many people have said, in this future world. I think the only way that they, I think if they were to address it, and I think if they were to try to kind of logical loop their way around it in in the context of Gilead would be to say that, you know, these handmaids literally aren't people. The baby is the baby of the white parents and like that to kind of like erase that entirely and almost like pretend like it's not a real thing. And at least, you know, probably because we've never seen a black or any kind of like man of color commander, the baby would maybe not be like as dark or like maybe they just pretend like, oh, no, they're white. You know what I mean? Like if if we've got sort of like a situation, but it is like it's hard for me to imagine like these blonde haired, blue eyed white ladies that we've seen as the commander's wives holding little brown babies and being like, this is fine. This is totally normal. This is my baby. You know, like it just feels so unlikely that we've solved the issues of of race in this Gilead world. But I I mean, they just have to say like, oh, well, that's not even a human that gave birth to that. And in some ways, like that plays into the racism, right? Like these these handmaids are not seen as human. Um, which is right, but they can give birth to 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 boy children, you know, right. and then that, and then then you get into the eugenics question, which right. is like, are we? What are we doing? Right, and so clearly, DNA and genetics no longer matter to them. Um, they've discarded that. They don't consider Janine to be the true mother of her child, right? But if Janine had was a black woman and she had a boy then, right, it's not, like, with a girl, it's easier to explain away, simply because women aren't in power, even even the wives aren't in power. But then, the second generation Gilead would definitely be a society that is not completely white. And I think what I'm racking my brain to figure out right now, to think back into every episode, is I think there has been literally no comment on race directly no, in the entire I have show. Not, I feel like I've been listening yeah. for it, and I don't think it has happened. I would love to speak with someone (laughs) who worked on the show um, because this had to have been a constant uh, major source of discussion for them because I think that for a show which does have a a diverse cast, as as any show produced now should, um, 
there's literally no commentary on race. And I find that to be interesting. And I also find it to be likely to be something that comes up in season two. So, so yeah, I was also surprised that they didn't address it a single time in any way in this season. Um, and there are a couple of pieces that were written about it um, by black women on the internet that people should read. Um, there's one from The Undefeated. It's called In Handmaid's Tale, A Post-Racial Patriarchal Hellscape. And that's by Soraya Nadia McDonald. Um, and that's a really good piece. I think both you and I read that um, back when it was written sort of at the beginning of yes. the season. Um, and it kind of points out kind of the insanity of like having this world that is so, so horrible, but also apparently not racist. <laughs> um, right. And then there's also an episode of um, the Slate uh, Represent podcast um, by Aisha Harris, and it sort of talks about The Handmaid's Tale and gender, race, sexuality, all of those things. And that is a another good thing to listen to about this particular part of um the show or I guess non-part of the show and how it was not addressed um, in any way. Um, So those are just two things to check out um, by writers and thinkers who are uh, black. So... Do you have any more predictions for next season or do you just you want, want to hear more end of my this? terrible because predictions? Like, <laughs> no, no. I mean, I mean, I, yes, of course, You're of course I do. No, of no, course no, I do. No but you know, I feel like, um, I think my only sort of parting comment is that I feel very, um, I feel like they closed it off really well. And I think that partially, of course, it's because Atwood's book ends amazingly. And I think that a lot of people are like, going to be like, oh, this is a cliffhanger. I I, I don't think it's a cli- – it is a cliffhanger, but it's also just – I love ambiguity um, in art, in television, and in, in books. And I know that that's irritating to many people. A book is irritating on a much higher level because, I mean, Margaret There's Atwood no wrote the book two. in 1985. <laughs> There's no sequel to it, and you're like, what the hell? And there is an epilogue which does satisfy sort of because you hear more information, but you actually never find out what becomes of June. It just ends. And you're like, well, did she live? Did she find her daughter? Did she clearly lived for a while? She clearly got out and had some tapes with her, but like, it's just, you don't know. Yeah. One thing that, um, so we're going to find out, you know, it's basically the next cut we're going to see is going to show us like what happened to her in, you know, in the van. Um, so we're going to be satisfied with it, you know, as soon as season two rolls around. But um, I thought it was a great, perfect ending. And I feel like they did. Um, I totally believe that this show could be, it works as a one season show. It yeah, could I agree. be just one season. I agree. And that is very hard to do. Yeah. I mean, I also really liked the ending and I was very like, even though we had sort of said like, oh, they're not going to do it the way the book did it. Then when they did do it pretty much exactly the way the book did it, I was like, oh, this is fucking great. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Um, And I think that they may have made it sort of not being sure that there would be another season, you know, it's sort of encapsulated and perfect the way that it is. I think that they probably suspected there would be because, um, it is such a beloved topic and it's also, I mean, not topic book and it's also very um, relevant to our current political discourse. So I think they probably sus- suspected there would be another season, but I think they probably, they were almost certainly not sure of it. So I think it is like, as a piece of of film on its own, I think it works really beautifully. Yeah. And I mean, I, I like feel both ways about these sorts of ambiguous endings. Like I, they're great, like in the sense that you just have this like 
they, they give you this like unique emotion where you're just like, what? And you have this like sort of feeling about it. And I, I love that. And you you're can like, also no, feel. No, don't do this to me. Yeah. But also like it, it can be frustrating, right? But the, those aren't mutually exclusive, right? Where you can also be like, I want to know. Okay. So just two really quick things. At the end of the book, there's this epilogue that Laura was talking about. And one of the things they say in the epilogue is that, and you can read this epilogue, I think, without spoiling the show for yourself. So feel free to go read that. Um, but basically at the end, they it's sort of this academic presentation where they talk from the future uh, after Gilead about Gilead. Right. It's been a couple hundred years, maybe. Yeah. And so what they, and they talk about these, and what they reveal is that this thing that you've just read, this whole book, is essentially transcripts of these tape recordings that June, June is not her name in the, um, in the book, but that June made while she was a handmaid. And there's sort of this like confessional tape recording thing that she did. And she taped them on top of these cassette tapes of like pop music, basically. And so some people have said to me, every time I complain, I get these tweets every time I complain about the music on the show is that maybe what they're doing is actually, because they talk about in the, in the epilogue, they talk about how when these archivists are going through these tapes and they're trying to kind of get to, so she sort of like is interspliced between music like her voice, these voice right. recordings. And so they're going through and they're hearing she like hid, little... She was like hiding they're it, hidden, right? Right, because you're not... Obviously, she's not supposed to have this tape recorder. She's not supposed to be doing any of this. So, um, so and then if anyone found the tapes and started playing them, they would just think that they were like these music tapes or whatever, instead of knowing that they were these sort of like very valuable recordings Documents, of this woman. Yeah. Um, and so some people have suggested that maybe these musical choices in the show are kind of a callback to the tapes where like they're sort of music is bubbling up in between things that are happening in the show. I think that is a very cute idea. I don't think that is what the show is doing. I think the musical choices are very specific and are very targeted and on the nose to the point where I think that's like annoying. But I mean, maybe like in hindsight, they're like, yeah, that's totally what we were doing. But I don't think when they set out to start putting those music, musical cues in, I don't think that's what they were thinking about. I mean, maybe not. Maybe we should have those. I think it's possible. I think it's possible. They, 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 were aware of that um, overlay. I, again, I we've talked about the music so much that I don't think we need to belabor it, but I do think that, you know, the ending of the book, the second ending, the epilogue ending is also ambiguous, but I do think that it makes it, it gives adds another level of sort of self-awareness to the project of The Handmaid's Tale, which I think we, um, you know, the, the show is very different. And so I think um, exploring that, is probably not going to happen. I don't think we'll ever shoot into the future on the show. But, you know, I think that um, the musical choices have sort of, whether you like them or not, they, they, um, they sort of secure us in our, in our now, in our, you know, remind us that this is not, um, you know, a galaxy far, far away. Right. So, um, yeah, I'm overall, like I have very few complaints. I did find it very difficult to watch. Um, I wouldn't say I look forward to every week, but um, I always feel really fired up after I'm done and like ready to talk about it. So um, I look forward to to next season. So I guess I have just learned from John that there might be a sequel to the book, which I am already extremely upset about uh, because I just feel like the book is so... like contained and perfect and I actually don't really I'm okay with finding out what happens in the context of the television show but I kind of don't really want to know what happens in the context of like an Atwood book not that I don't like Atwood I think she's great and like all that stuff but I just feel like these kinds of sequels can often just be like I don't know I just have like such a clear I don't know I also just feel like there must be a reason she hasn't written one right yeah it's been like 35 years or whatever I feel like there must be a reason she hasn't written one till now which is like 
I, you know, obviously there would be mass financial reason to do it. I don't think that's the reason authors write novels most of the time. I mean, but also I think, I think that, Margaret Atwood's doing just fine. Yeah, no, for sure. <laughs> but I think that like in terms of like get cranking out a hit, like a Handmaid's Tale sequel would be an instant success yeah. on like every level, whether or not it was good. Right, exactly. And so I also feel very um, uh, rebellious against the concept of it, but I don't feel the way about the show. And so that does leave me in a, like, a sort of weird position with it because I going into the first season, I thought this, I hope this is not a multi-season show. I hope, because I like things that are short, contained, and perfect. Um, some shows end too early, but I almost never feel like they do. But now that I've gotten here and they've ended it exactly the way the fucking book ends, and I'm like, I'm ready happens. for season two. <laughs> yeah. Now I want to know what happens. And I, and I want to imagine that um, maybe maybe the creators of the show um, – I, I think they probably did reach this point because Atwood sort of works on the show as an advisor or an executive producer. And they were like, well, what would happen next? And she's like, oh, let me tell you, I have the answers. And that is, I totally get. And I see why it would sort of create it, what creative reasons would lead her to write a sequel. I would absolutely read it, but I agree oh, with I you. Would, like, I'm not initial, saying I wouldn't read it. I would just be mad about it. Yeah. My initial <laughs> like thing is like, I'd, I would take a day off of work and I would read it. I, yeah. You know, I think that, my initial gut is like, no, but it's only because I have seen that, you know, the George Lucases of the world can tinker with their past in ways that are profoundly upsetting to purists. But I'm generally not a purist. And I think she has the right to write, you know, 500 more Handmaid's Tale books and I will happily read them. And I think it's hers to fuck up or make better, you know, it's her creation and her like whatever. So I'm, I I guess I'm, I agree with you. And I also am like, then I'm like, eh, you know, it's hers. Yeah. I mean, I guess I understand if I were an author and they made, and I had a novel and they made a show about it and then there was going to be a sequel of that show, I probably would want to like tell them what happens. And then in that case, like you might as well just fucking write the book. Um, So that is all for this episode, episode eight of our podcast. Um, Don't unsubscribe yet. There might be more episodes of our podcast uh, about this show potentially in the future. Um, Maybe something fun and bonus that would be really cool. So don't unsubscribe. Um, But if you like The Handmaid's Tale, it probably means you like some sort of sci-fi maybe potentially. Um, And if that is the case, uh, you could check out my other podcast, which is called Flash Forward. Um, it's about the future. Every episode is a combination of sort of audio drama and actual expert interviews. Um, people have described it as like Black Mirror meets Radiolab, which is a very kind of description of the show, except it's not always quite as dark as Black Mirror. Um, so yeah, so if you like um, that kind of stuff, it's not always tech or science. Sometimes it's like cultural futures, historical futures. We've done one where California breaks away from the United States, um, that kind of stuff. Check it out. Flash forward. Um, and it's on all of the podcasting apps. So I just wanted to really quickly thank everybody for listening every week and for the people who um, sent me rude or um, kind emails. Also, thank you. We really appreciate it. And we love to hear from you. I never got any emails. No one ever emailed me. No. Hmm. You seem more approachable, maybe. Um, (laughs) uh, Yeah. We'll be back soon. And we'll definitely be back uh, next season for the Red Center. I'm Laura June. I'm Rose Eveleth. Under his eye. Under his eye. <laughs>